Support for The Bittersweet Life comes from Clyde Hill Publishing, partner and publisher for founders, innovators, thinkers, and tinkerers. Clyde Hill works with non-traditional authors to help bring their ideas and lessons to life. Their newest title is I Had No Idea You Were Black by Ronald Crutcher. Whether navigating cancel culture at the University of Richmond, where he serves as president in the heart of the former Confederacy, or teaching Northeast liberals the true meaning of functional diversity, Dr. Crutcher offers lessons on life and leadership that none of us can afford to ignore. To learn more about Clyde Hill's services and books, visit ClydeHillPublishing.com or Clyde Hill Pub on Twitter. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. If you're brand new to the show, welcome, number one. And number two, this episode is part two of an episode that aired earlier in the week. So please start by looking for episode 353, where we'll take you out of the house and onto the streets of Rome, virtually, of course. If you've already heard part one, welcome to part two. We can't wait to take you back to the streets of Rome. Hello, I'm Katie Sewell, and this is A Bittersweet Moment with Tiffany Parks. Hello, and welcome to The Bittersweet Life. I'm Tiffany Parks, and this is your midweek bittersweet moment. As promised on Monday, I'm here with Katie Sewell here. (laughs) If you don't know her yet, we're back. We are continuing our virtual tour of Rome with wonderful, unexpected guests. If you haven't heard Monday's episode, please go back and listen to that one first. This one won't make tons of sense without it. Yes. And without further ado, let us go virtually back to the streets of Rome. I'm kind of hungry. Let's go for lunch. Is there anywhere good to eat around here? Yeah, one of my favorite restaurants. Yeah, can we just walk somewhere? Mm Mm-hmm. One of my favorite restaurants is just down the street, Taverna Trilusa. Okay, great. Let's go there. Let's go get some ravioli. Okay, well, here we are. Just got to sit down here, pull up a seat. Just going to get a quick snack. I don't really want to do a big sit-down dinner right now. but Oh, I do. I'm starving. Tell me about this place. Why do you like this place? This is where Claudio and I had our first date, actually. Claudio, your husband. Way back when. But I loved this restaurant already before I met him. And then when we went on our first date, we met in Piazza Trilusa, which is just a block away. And I said, you know, where do you want to go for dinner? And he said, do you like Taverna Trilusa? And I was like, uh, it's my favorite restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a very good start. Beyond just the fact that it's a really great ambiance and really, very warm ambiance, there's a dish on the menu that is incredible. First of all, there's an entire page just of mozzarella in the (laughs) menu, an entire page on mozzarella. Uh, Yum. But also, they have the most amazing ravioli, ravioli mimosa, incredibly delicious, and uh, they often will serve it to you in the pan that it's cooked in, which is sort of extra fun. Yeah, very nice. What would you say this decor is, would you say? 
How is it decorated? It's very traditional. Um, I think it's trying to look like a traditional Roman trattoria, but on a sort of higher level. Old-fashioned, but fancy old-fashioned, if that makes sense. What I love most about it are the poems that are written on the walls, because, of course, it's named after the great poet Trilusa, who the piazza is named after, and obviously this restaurant is named after him as well. And so there are little snippets from Trilusa, Trilusa's poems on the walls. Of course, a famous Roman poet. Yeah, why are there so many things dedicated to him in Trastevere? Is that because he lived in Trastevere? Oh, you know, I don't actually know that. I should know the answer to that question if I were any good Roman, but I don't. Maybe he did. I don't know. I'd have to look that up for you, Katie. Well, it just goes to show there's always more to learn. There's always more to learn. Well, what I like about this place, Trastevere can tend to be, I mean, it's not super touristy compared to like, say, around the Colosseum, but there are a lot of American universities here, and so it does tend to be a little overrun mm-hmm. with college students at certain times of the year. Mm-hmm. And because of that, there's quite a few places in Trastevere that are a little bit cheesy. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Quite a few bars and some restaurants that you walk in and you think, well, I'm not going to spend more than two seconds in here. And in part of that, I feel like, is pictures of celebrities. Celebrities like Audrey Hepburn, I feel like she's everywhere in Rome. Of course, when I lived just a few streets over here in Trastevere, the dominant feature of my sublet apartment was a giant poster of Audrey Hepburn. Do you remember that? That's right. I had forgotten about that from Breakfast at Tiffany's. Yeah, and I couldn't help but uh, notice that sitting the next table over, I hope he doesn't mind if I interrupt him. I don't think he, oh, he's already noticed that we're here, is Mo Rocca. CBS News correspondent and host of the Mobituaries podcast, which looks at the lives and deaths of famous people. Hey, Mo, if you don't mind, uh, Audrey Hepburn was big when you were living abroad, too, right? When I lived in Japan many years ago, I remember that Japanese women, at least then, were obsessed with Audrey Hepburn. And in Rome, near the Trevi Fountain, right, they as well as many other international tourists, would kind of go and retrace the steps that she made as the character of Princess Anne in the film Roman Holiday. And my father was a big Japanophile, and I once asked him, why are Japanese women so into Audrey Hepburn? He said, well, it's partly a physicality thing. But another reason is that movie Roman Holiday, she chooses duty over love in the end, and that seems to be sort of a virtue or a value that at least in post-war Japan really drew the Japanese. We think of her as definitely a one-of-a-kind movie star, but a, a movie star that comes to be in America. As Americans, we, we like to own her a little bit, but she's not at all. No, she wasn't. I mean, she was really born in Belgium. Then they made a really bad move, she and her mother, by going to Holland once World War II, I think, had begun. They were in Holland when it was occupied by the Nazis and blockaded by the Nazis and when many people starved. Some people starved to death. A good number of people starved to death. She nearly starved to death. And when I talked to both of her sons... They agreed that her experience in World War II was so fundamental to who she was and so at the heart of this quality of yearning and gratitude. You just see them in her. And after hearing her story and what she went through in the war, I went back and looked at her movie roles 
I could really see it in her eyes. I could see it in the glee she expresses when she's riding on that Vespa through Rome, when she's free for a day, liberated. If you've seen the movie, you know you know that she's basically goes incognito as a commoner and gets to experience real freedom. And what I found so interesting was that studios tried to replicate her. They tried. They found other actresses that even looked like her, that were beautiful, that had lots of talent, but they didn't have the same quality. And it's very significant that Audrey Hepburn, in her first screen test, it's her talking about the war. She's not reading lines. She's not talking about how lovely it is to be in California. She's talking about what she went through in the war. I don't believe these things happen by accident. I think audiences are smart, and I think that they respond to people, and especially over long periods of time, for good reasons. Curious, Tiffany. Thanks a lot, Mo. That's really interesting. Curious, Tiffany, though, have you ever talked to, say, a Roman maybe even your husband, Claudio, about how they feel about Audrey Hepburn. I know that they feel like visitors to Rome care about Audrey Hepburn, but do the Romans themselves care? You know, I don't think that in all of my over 16 years of living in Rome that Audrey Hepburn has ever come up in conversation with an Italian. I really don't think so. I mean, I think maybe if people work in the tourist industry, they're more used to seeing pictures of her at tourist sites and stuff, using maybe her images for advertising. But in day-to-day life, Audrey Hepburn doesn't really come up very often. Definitely working at the magazine, at Wear Magazine, I've definitely written at least one art. I think she was on the cover of one of our, our magazines once. Yeah, she was. It was a photo of her in a little bit later years, looking very glamorous and walking down the street in Rome. And I've definitely done an article that was sort of, instead of following the typical Roman holiday itinerary, you know, followed this itinerary instead. The same areas, but different sites to actually stop at. Right. That were not so touristy. Like, don't stick your hand in the mouth of truth. Go here instead. Exactly. That was exactly the article. It was, don't put your hand in the mouth of truth. Go inside the church, Santa Maria and Cosmodin, and see this amazing church instead that nobody ever looks at because they're too busy waiting in line to put their hand in the mouth of truth. Mm -hmm. It was exactly that. Don't bother going to the Trevi Fountain, but instead go and see the ruins of the Aqua Virgin Aqueduct that feeds the fountain. Stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, outside of the tourist world, I really don't think she's a big part of the Roman consciousness just a tourist thing you just said a rather controversial thing and we've done uh, this is our second virtual tour of rome and uh we never have gone to the trevi fountain with good reason <laughs> but for those of the people who are listening who are planning their trip to rome right now even though we're already in rome <laughs> <laughs> yeah why are we not taking them over there you know we could because i'll tell you the, the, the trevi fountain is actually very impressive right now because it's almost empty. There'll be people milling about, but in any time of year in Rome, even in dead middle of January, the Trevi Fountain is always packed with people. You can't go there and not have it be packed with people, unless it's the middle of the night. The only time is like after 2 a.m., from 2 a.m. to 5 a.m., it'll be empty, but otherwise it's packed with people. Right now it's not, and it is something to see. You know, the main reason I don't want to take you there, Katie, is because it's so loud. With the water gushing that, you know, no one would be able to hear us talking. That's true. That's true. Well, I got to say, I completely just uh, wolfed down the entire plate of pasta somehow while we were still talking. But I'm ready to go (laughs) maybe take a little walk, burn some of this off, 
What do you say? You ready to go? Yeah, let's let's burn some of this off by walking up the Jenny Kilim Hill, and we can reward ourselves with beautiful views of the city. Sounds good. So where are we now? We are standing at the top of the Geniculum Hill, uh, near the uh, Fontanone, and spread out below us is this beautiful, magnificent city. And I love it this time of day, you know, when the sun starts to go down and it starts to just sort of shimmer and it's all pink and gold. And you can see the Pantheon. and Yeah. Ah, it's a beautiful, beautiful view from up here. Why is this fountain here? Um, you know, in Rome, they would have what they called show fountains. Wherever the aqueduct entered the city or wherever the aqueduct ended, they would sometimes build a show fountain. They call it a mostra, which sort of means like an exhibition. Kind of to show off, really, to show off how much water the city had to spare. As we got into the Baroque period and beyond, it just became more and more over the top. And they're always trying to build the biggest or the most grandest fountain. But it's actually something that they used to do in ancient Rome, too, was to build a show fountain wherever the aqueduct entered the city. So they repaired the aqueduct that feeds this fountain, which is the Aqua Paola. It's called the Aqua Paola now, but I think it was the Trajan's aqueduct, if I'm not mistaken. It was broken and highly damaged during the Middle Ages, but it was repaired under Pope Paul the... Oh, is it the third or the fifth? I'm not sure. I think it was the fifth. But that's why it's called Aqua Paola now, because Paolo, you know, repaired it on the same line as the original aqueduct. But a lot of the parts are, are much newer than the ancient aqueducts. But yeah, so that's why. To kind of keep that tradition alive. Yeah. And right around the corner from here is the church you got married in. That's right. Like half a block down the hill. San Pietro in Montorio. And why did you pick that place? That church. Well, Claudio and I used to live on Via Garibaldi, which we just walked up to get up here. And I was living there when we met. And we very often would walk up this very street on Sundays to take a walk or a run in Villa Pamfili, which is just a little bit further up. And this was just a part of the city that we spent so much time in, so much of our sort of first year of our love story, that when it was time to to decide where to get married. I mean, there's so many beautiful churches in Rome, but this neighborhood really felt right, either up here on the Janiculum Hill or in Trastevere itself. San Pietro Montorio has two things that really make it special. One is the view. You step out the door and you've got the entire city at your feet. And the other is the Tempietto, which I adore, as you know, the tiny little Renaissance jewel of a miniature shrine by Donato Bramante in its courtyard. So for those two reasons, I, uh, I said, that's where I want to get married. Is there any truth to the rumor that Peter was killed at this site? I'm talking about the apostle, of course. No, no, no. It was believed back in the 1500s, in the Renaissance period, that uh, St. Peter had been crucified upside down on the Janiculum Hill. And there are reasons why they believe that. I can't remember the reasons at the moment. I think it has something to do with a pyramid that was destroyed, an ancient pyramid, sort of like the one in the Testaccio neighborhood, but it was over by the Vatican, but it was destroyed, you know, in ancient times. And something about that, I can't remember the exact reasons, but there were certain documents written down where St. Peter was was executed, and they were mistaken. The long short story is they were mistaken, and it was later officially decided where exactly it was. It was very close to where St. Peter's Basilica is today. 
But there were people who believed that it was on the Jadikulam Hill. I believe it was the Spanish royal family who had that, the Tempieto built on that site uh, because they believed that was where St. Peter had been martyred. And of course, that church is des- dedicated to St. Peter. Hmm. So I know you love Bermonte, but why do you like the Tempieto so much? I mean, I think I love it just because just of how small it is. I mean, you know, you go into these giant, huge basilicas in Rome, and they're very impressive. They're enormous. But this place is so tiny. I, I can't even describe to you how small it is. Only about three people can fit inside at a time. It's minuscule. It's a temple inside the courtyard of a church. So tiny and so delicious. And it's so, also so perfect. It's just, it's got all the, like, perfect Renaissance ideals incorporated into one tiny jewel. Wow. Wow. And wow, look over there. There's Anthony Doerr, the <laughs> Pulitzer Prize winning author of All the Light We Cannot See. Also, winner of the Rome Prize, which means he got to live in Rome for a year at the American Academy in Rome, which I am dying to do someday. Tony, Katie over here. Hi. Uh, Tony, we were just talking about this small things of Rome, like the Timpietto down the hill there. What is the smallest thing that you were ever inspired by? Huh. I'm sure. I mean, I can even think of like, you know, microscopic things. We, you know, I remember looking at paramecium and bacteria and the microscope and you know, my mom being a science teacher, that stuff didn't seem nerdy or strange to us. That was just part of our upbringing, you know, grab something from the pond and bring it up and put it in mom's microscope and watch these little battles that are happening. You can look at the universe on a warm summer night, and that can be totally inspiring. And yet you can also just look at one drop of human blood, and that can be totally inspiring. Yeah, I suppose it's true that people can find beauty and inspiration in anything that catches their attention. I think that's true. Tony, on a totally different note, so you won the Rome Prize. Something I really, as I mentioned, really, really, really would like to win sometime. Can you tell me what it was like to win the Rome Prize? Sure. Back when we were lucky enough to get it, writers didn't apply. Uh, So it was like a lightning bolt that came out of the blue. It was 15 or 16 years ago, 15 years ago. My wife was pregnant with twins. Uh, she, I was at Princeton for the years. So we were in a rental apartment. There she goes. She delivers. Maybe four hours later, I ride my bike through the snow back home to get the mail and get a bag for her to go back to the hospital. In the mailbox at our rental apartment is a letter from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, which used to partner with the American Academy in Rome. And you unfold it and it says, congratulations, you have been awarded... <laughs> a chance to live in Rome for a year at the American Academy. I didn't even know what it was. I had to Google it. I think there was Google. Maybe I had to ask Jeeves it. <laughs> yeah. So I go back. My wife is recovering from morphine and surgery. We have two new humans in our lives. And I'm like, hey, do you want to read this letter now? So thankfully, she was brave enough to do it. We had three months before we had to go, but we went over there. The boys are almost four months old. And they give you an apartment, they give you a little bit of money, and you get to be in this incredible spot, as many of your listeners know, on the top of the Janiculum Hill overlooking Trastevere. They have one of the most beautiful gardens in the city, Bass Gardens behind the academy, and it was just a remarkable, remarkable experience for me. Wow, that would be amazing. The most beautiful place in Rome. <sighs> 
they currently don't have a category for radio artists, but I'm really hoping they decide to open one up. <laughs> well, hey, he said that writers didn't used to apply, and he got it. Yeah? Yeah, but you have to have a published book, which I do not. Maybe if I play them this tour of Rome that we're currently doing. Writers didn't used to win, and he's a writer, and he won. Why shouldn't r- radio artists now win? You know, it seems like it's expanding. And he didn't even apply, which means they could be just about to call me. They could be. (laughs) I know. Somehow they've heard of the bittersweet life and they're about to call. Katie, this has been the most amazing tour. I mean, getting to walk around the city with you is always a huge pleasure. But to run into not one, but five of our previous guests who are all incredibly brilliant, (laughs) fascinating individuals... I mean, wow, what a day. And really, just one of hundreds of people that have, I don't know if it's hundreds, a hundred people that have (laughs) been on this show over the course of its run so far. Hey, we didn't tell uh, everyone where they could hear more from Anthony Doerr and from Moraka. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry I was remiss on that. If you want to catch Moraka's episode, it is 290 Mobituaries. And... Anthony Doerr joined us on episodes 274 and 275, Story Parts 1 and 2. Yes, both fantastic conversations that I very much enjoyed. And wow, it's getting a little late and I got to get all the way back to Seattle. I'm supposed to be under quarantine. So I think uh, we probably should say goodbye for this tour, this time. It's been really nice to be together walking these streets. It has been It has been. I've missed seeing you in person. Yes. Drop us a line if you want to say hello, if you have an idea for the show, if there's something you want to know about, if there's some guest, author, expert you're hoping we'll have on. You can always write to us, bittersweetlifepodcast at gmail.com. You can also use the contact us page at thebittersweetlife.net. And, of course, we are a modern show, so where else can they find us? Oh, they can find us on social media, on (laughs) Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. So just search for The Bittersweet Life Podcast. And if you're new to the show, don't be afraid to start at the beginning. This has been a long journey, one that we have been honored to have you with us on. So if you're just sort of showing up here, don't be afraid to dig back into our archives and find some really fun episodes, some about the expat life, some just about life yes we're perfectly willing to keep you company on entire days (laughs) you could just start at episode one you'll be caught up by next week just by plowing through (laughs) you won't regret it i promise you there there's so many great guests we wander all over rome for real not just virtually it's a good time and until next time this is the bittersweet life i'm katie sewell i'm tiffany parks join us again bye Thanks to Clyde Hill Publishing for supporting this program. Find inspiring and thought-provoking nonfiction with a focus on founders, innovators, thinkers, and tinkerers at ClydeHillPublishing.com or Clyde Hill Pub on Twitter.